Alright, if you can find your way to Philippians chapter 2, we're continuing. We've got a short paragraph today. I make no promises. Alright. It will not be 60 minutes. There's my promise. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Let's pray. Father, You have given us Your Word so that we might know that there is joy in Your presence, that we might know that there is a joy greater than the joy that we tend to seek in this world. So to have that joy, it is vital, Father, that we would understand and believe Your Word. And we need Your Spirit to illuminate that Word for us so that we can understand it. We need Your Spirit to work in our hearts and minds that we would believe and treasure what Your Word says. Fill us with lasting joy this morning in accordance with Your Word. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, who died for our joy and for Your joy. Amen. (coughs) When I was a kid, I used to watch Romper Room. Some of you might remember that little show. And there was a, you know, this might be as, as, as good as my knowledge of Catholicism as I learned this morning. Um, but I remember she would sometimes say to you to put your thinking caps on. And so I want you to kind of put your thinking caps on for a moment. Okay? And I want you to imagine. I want you to imagine a family where there is no obedience. Imagine a family where the husband and wife are always at odds with one another and they're also at odds with all of the children. Where requests to take out the garbage are met with, why? When requests to clean up the room are like, are met with, no, I refuse. (laughs) A house that is filled with angry words and tantrums through and through. Imagine, for a moment, a whole society like that. Sometimes we don't have to imagine it too hard. There are movies that sometimes have cultures like that. I think of RoboCop for some strange reason. Society's out of control because no one is humble. Everyone's proud and everyone wants their own way. And life becomes very difficult. Imagine a church like that. Imagine a church that is marked by arrogance and and strife and infighting, one that is floundering and divided. Why do I ask these questions this morning? Well, it's in part because that's where Paul's going with all of this. 
we see at the end of chapter 1 this uh, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And he continues. This idea of living as good citizens, which we talked about when we were in chapter 1, has carried over into chapter 2. And Paul has talked about the humiliation of Jesus Christ who, who emptied himself, Jesus Christ who humbled himself and was obedient even to death on the cross, and now enters into this discussion of obedience. How can we obey? That's an important question. Because if we don't ask that question, then we end up like those imaginary communities that in fact are not all that imaginary at times. So our big question this morning is, how does the gospel produce obedience to God? Because that is the subject that Paul turns his attention to. And I'm going to do this, uh, <coughs> I've mentioned the name Francis Turton here before, and he does it in terms of, uh, does this theology in terms of questions and answers, and that's kind of how I'm doing this. So uh, if you don't like it, blame Francis Turton. So, um, but no. And these are sort of the, the the questions that arise. I think that Paul is addressing in his in this paragraph. And the first question that sort of arises, I think, naturally, because Paul does this in other places like Romans, does the grace of God mean that I'm Utterly passive in life. And that's a legitimate question. Uh, and our call to confess our sins, we heard about our rest and our quietness. And, and there are some groups that talk about passivity and quietism with regard to their Christian experience. Does the grace of God mean that I am entirely passive? So what does Paul say about this? Paul has just spoke, spoken to them and to us, therefore, about Jesus Christ both as our gift of salvation and also as our example. And now he's returning to the gospel implications that he began in chapter 1, verse 27. We know this because of that little word, therefore. But he starts off with, therefore, my beloved. Paul is addressing the Philippians out of a sense of abounding love for them. Paul prayed that in in verse 8 of chapter 1 that the Philippians would experience abounding love, and that's something that Paul already has, a love that overflows and goes beyond its measure. He's experiencing that for the Philippians, and in part it's because God has already abounded in love for the Philippians. The Philippians need to know that they are greatly loved by God. But it's also good to know that they are greatly loved by Paul. That These things that he's about to say need to be understood within a context of love. Paul's not writing these things because he's angry with them. Paul is not writing these things because he's trying to judge them. Paul is writing these things because he loves them. He cares for them deeply. He treasures them. And he writes about their obedience. 
And what's interesting is that he recognizes their past and their present obedience. Whether he was with them or whether he was absent. And it echoes what we just read at the end of chapter 1. So there's another contextual clue that what he's saying here ties in with what he started back in chapter 1, verse 27. Okay? They obeyed. But the implication here is that their obedience was imperfect. But let's not miss the point. It's there. Right? They had some measure of obedience. There were some things in the Lord that they were walking in and they could be praised for and they could be, they could rejoice in. I think why he does this is, is that he understands human nature. And while he may not have had children, I think he was around children, but it doesn't end with childhood, is that sometimes we hear things in absolute terms. The, the call to obey, to obey uh, somehow means in our minds that we never obey and therefore we never can obey. And I don't want you to hear, Paul didn't want the Philippians to hear this as if they never obeyed, and I don't want you to hear this as if you've never obeyed, you've never done anything right. Even as there's encouragement to go farther and further in your obedience, let's not think that you're someone who has to, I have to beat myself up for these things. Okay? Paul is writing to people who have been justified. They have been declared in, in, uh, righteous in Jesus Christ. His his obedience has been imputed to them or given to them, accounted to them. It's been placed on their ledger. So he's not writing to people who are trying to earn God's love, but to people who already have God's love. And one of the greatest um, stumbling stones in the Christian life is to forget that. Is to somehow forget that we are already loved by God and, and forgiven and declared righteous and to think that somehow we have to earn God's love, earn God's pleasure, earn God's righteousness or uh, justification. And so there's a sense in which he's telling them, relax. But then he says, work out your own salvation. There's an idea here Okay, this is not earn your salvation. If we be very careful about this, again, this is within the context of people who have received the gift of salvation from Jesus Christ. But what we have received in Christ, Paul is saying, needs to be cultivated. That's one of those terms that we um, need to re- remind ourselves more of. We, an agricultural society, that's a common term. If you're a gardener, this is a common term. Uh, you don't just plant something and walk away. You continue to weed and water and feed so that it grows and is healthy. And there's something about the salvation that we received uh, that we are intended to cultivate. Uh, to remember that we live by faith. To remember that we continue to repent of our sin. To remember that we're to progress 
and, and godliness. That, that there's not a passivity that comes as a result of the gospel. We're passive in terms of our justification, but Paul here would lead us to believe um, that we are not passive with regard to what's called our sanctification, our growth in being like Jesus Christ. This word of working out, this word of cultivation, that's a context it's often used in, is intended to point us to, to conscious, deliberate activity in order to live in keeping with our new identity. That there was a, a way of life that's associated with your old identity in Adam, but now because you're in Jesus Christ, you've got a new identity and you need to live that out. That becomes uh, very clear. Um, when you adopt, it's very clear. Because you have children who were not from your family, who are now in your family, and they have to learn how to live in your family, not the family they used to be in, or lack of family they used to be in. But it's the same thing when you're married. What are you doing? You, you, you've got to leave behind your old identity as a single person uh, who lived like your parents raised you to a, a now a married person who is forming a brand new culture in a home. And that's a culture that is going to have to be cultivated over time. And so it's work. There is a measure of work that takes place within the context of the Christian life. Paul wants them to know, and he wants them to make sure they're doing the right work, not the wrong work. And so their obedience was real, and yet this indicates that their obedience was also incomplete. It was also imperfect. They needed to grow and their experience of the Christian life needed to become more thorough or thoroughgoing. Now, there's some that argue that the word salvation here refers not to their eternal salvation, but to an earthly sort of deliverance, and it can mean that. I think it's the eternal one. And yet the eternal one is also worked out in the context of your earthly troubles and circumstances. Okay. I know, so I probably frustrate you sometimes with my both and <laughs> kind of comments, but I think we, we get in trouble sometimes when we try to narrow things down to, to mean one thing. And, and what he's going on to here is that their salvation needs to be worked out within the context of their covenant community. It needs to be worked out within the context of the struggles they were experiencing as a church. And so your eternal salvation is going to be worked out within the context of the struggles you have, whether it's at home, at church, at work, or your neighborhood. You're intended to work out your new identity within those problems, responding more like Christ and less like Adam. That's what Paul's getting at. This is a corporate command. That's, again, one of the weaknesses of English. This you is plural. But let's not think 
that the corporate command excludes individual obedience, but actually it requires individual obedience. They were all responsible. Now, one of the great problems that, that can often happen is that um, when everyone's responsible, no one is responsible. You see this sometimes, and this is one of my um, the things that, that that I feel like an ice pick goes into my head sometimes. Um, because no individual takes responsibility, and there's a certain things that get lost in the corporateness of a body, and uh, that happens. That's, is that too vague for you? I don't want to be mean to anybody. <laughs> um, don't want to don't want to single them out, so to speak. But sometimes, if everyone is responsible for uh, something like, uh, let's pretend for a moment, at home, I just said. We as a family need to change the AC filters. They would probably never get changed. I have to take responsibility to change the AC filters. We can't just rely on the guy from Temco to show up every six months and do it. Does that make sense? And so when Paul talks about this idea of the the corporate obedience, it doesn't mean that that's for the other person sitting three seats down from you in the, in the seats here at church. This does not mean that they're to obey, but it like kind of lets you off the hook. But really it's about all of us taking responsibility for these things of working out our salvation. He tells them to do this with fear and trembling. We don't usually like to talk about fear. Fear seems like a very bad thing. We try to avoid fear at all costs. Um, and none of us like to tremble. But fear here likely refers to reverent awe, not shaking in your boots, um, ready to run away kind of fear. It's not about being scared and hiding as though a serial killer is in your house and looking to get you. But here's what happens. If we tend to think of God as great, okay, and hang with me. If we, if our primary understanding of God as, is as great, we tend to experience that servile fear, that, that quaking in the boots kind of fear, that wanting to, uh, run and hide kind of fear like Adam and Eve after they ate of the fruit. They want to hide in the bushes. And it's this kind of, um, Understanding of God that often leads to legalism. To try and avoid the wrath of God. On the flip side, if we think of God primarily as gracious, there tends to be an over-familiarity with God. There tends to be a movement towards license or antinomianism where obedience really doesn't matter. Because God's my buddy, He loves me, and it's okay. But what we find in the scriptures is that God is great and God is gracious. We see this in places like Exodus 20. At the beginning, it talks about how God is great and gracious in that he redeemed them from slavery in Egypt. And then down at the end of the chapter, we see that Moses said to the people, Do not fear, servile fear, for God has come to test you that you may fear or revere him 
that he may be before you and that you may not sin. So Paul, I think, is writing about this kind of fear that realizes that God is great, that realizes that God is gracious and draws near to him and wants to serve him. If we see the same thing in Exodus 34, oh, the revelation of God to, to Moses upon the mountain, where it starts off with, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. But later it will also say that he in no way lets the guilty off. And so he reveals himself as Lord as great, and gracious. Both of these things. And because He is great and gracious, our response because of the Gospel is that we should have reverent awe that draws near and longs to please. My Greek professor in seminary liked to to, uh, raise and train dogs. He actually was competitive. And one of his dogs was a champion. And uh, he usually brought the dogs in, but he didn't this that, that year that I had him for this particular lecture. But he talked about his, his two dogs. Um, the champion was named Elvis, I think. He liked Elvis. And he said, both dogs would do exactly what he said. The difference between those two dogs was one operated out of the wrong fear that they would get a tongue lashing or a a swat if they disobeyed. The champion is the one who obeyed because he loved his master and delighted in hearing the pleasure in his master's voice. And it was just evident in the way this dog carried itself that this dog was not about avoiding punishment, this dog was about pursuing pleasure. Being pleased in the pleasure of his master. And that's why I believe Paul is sort of calling these people too with talk about the fear right here. (coughs) This trembling, this word can be used to describe the anxiety of one who recognizes their inability. They're trembling because they know they don't measure up to the task. And so we as Christians recognize or should recognize uh, because we're humble that we're, we're not really up to the task to which God is calling us to. That that phrase that uh, God will not give you more than you can handle is not in the Bible. Um, but that God often does do that because it's not about what you can or cannot do. It's about what He wants to do. And so really, if we think about that first question, does the grace of God mean that I'm passive? Our answer would be, the the work of Christ for my salvation calls me to work out in my life, work it out in my life while I trust. I'm going to be active. I'm going to be engaged in my Christian life, not simply a passive receiver. But there's a second question that sort of emerges as I think about this text, and I think what Paul is really sort of getting at. How does the gospel address our wills so that we do the right thing, not the easy thing? How How does the gospel address the fact that sometimes I want to do the wrong thing, but God calls me to do the right thing? That's an important question. 
Our fear and our trembling isn't just about the reality of obedience. It's just not, it's not simply about the greatness and the graciousness of God, but it's also something Paul draws us deeper to. He says, for or because. We, we work out our salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who works in you. We tremble in awe because God has chosen to work in us who are so very messy. And I'm not just referring to the condition of your room, but the condition of our hearts. We're messy people, and yet Paul wants the Philippians to know that God's at work in them. That they're not in this alone. Uh, that, that, that their working out is really not all dependent upon them, but there's something greater that's going on and that God is at work in them. God is the one who works in them. That's good news because we, we understand the way that sin works in us. And so Paul wants them to know that sin is not the only thing at work in you. But God's also at work in you. In other words, God the Holy Spirit is busy in your life applying the work of Christ to you so that you're able to work out your salvation. That you're able to cultivate your salvation. And so the the initiative of everything shifts from you to God. That's one of the good things of the good news of the gospel. Our obedience is more a result of God's gracious work than it is our struggle and effort, however important our struggle and effort might be. Where does Paul get this? Does he kind of pull this out of thin air? Well, no. This is precisely what was promised in the new covenant. We see it in Jeremiah 31. I will put my spirit, sorry, I'll put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And so part of what goes on is that God writes or rewrites his law upon the heart of his people. But we read from Ezekiel 11 and while it doesn't talk specifically about the new covenant, um, it, the words are almost identical to what we find in the promise of the new covenant in Ezekiel 36. There's, there's, there's just a shift from they to you. Otherwise, it's almost identical. This reality of a new heart, this new spirit that will be placed within them, and then there's that, this addition that takes place in Ezekiel 36, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. So not only does he write the law upon their hearts, but he gives them his spirit who works in them in order that they might walk in obedience to him, which is exactly what Paul is talking about right here in Philippians chapter 2. How does he work within us? The first area, so to speak, he works within us is to will. The Holy Spirit works on our wills, our capacity to desire, and our capacity to choose. We could get stuck in all kinds of philosophical debates about the will. I'm not going to do that. 
I will note that Jonathan Edwards calls the will the mind choosing. That's kind of an easy way to think about the will before you get into all that philosophical stuff. It's the mind choosing. And so the Spirit operates in our thinking, which is exactly what we see in Romans 12. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The Spirit works within the uh, how we think. And sometimes um, cartoons have done this. Um, there's the angel on one shoulder, and then there's the devil on the other shoulder. And we sort of experience that sometimes. As um, our conscience works things out, it seems like there's two voices in our head. One that wants to seek pleasure in sin, and the other that wants to seek pleasure in God's righteousness. In obedience. And that's the Spirit working. As it says, it talks about in, in Galatians 5, there's, there's now this conflict within you between the flesh and the Spirit. And Paul here is, is phrasing it here in terms of the Spirit's at work to oppose your sin and to promote obedience out of faith. By working upon your will so that you choose the right thing. Ultimately, we are called to rely upon God to work up obedience uh, using the appropriate means. Scripture, like this text and others. Friends who encourage us and point us in the right direction and remind us of the promises of God. You know, that's exactly what... Paul is doing. He's writing scripture, but he's also writing as a friend who deeply loves them. And so God uses means. He doesn't always use, doesn't always work directly upon us, but often, often uses these means to change our thinking so that we will change our choosing. When we struggle to work these things out, oftentimes we begin to pray for God to be at work at a particular area. So, what does that look like? Sometimes it's realizing that um, you lack self-control. And you've noticed that you lack self-control because, man, the belt doesn't work quite right anymore. And maybe, maybe that's an area of lack of self-control. It could be other things, of course. There can be health issues that caused this. But sometimes it's, Father, I lack self-control. I cannot resist the tortilla chips. I cannot resist the Pringles. And every time I see a grain of rice, I must consume it. And realizing where that weakness lies, that it's not just about carbohydrates or whatever it is you like, chocolate. That there is the lack of a fruit of the Spirit called self-control that God wants to build within you and now you want to see built within you and begin to pray about. 
And so the answer to our second question is that God works in our wills so that we want to obey. But we recognize in our own experience that there are times when we want to obey, but we still struggle to obey, which doesn't make any sense. If we want to do it, we should be able to just do it, but yet we find that often we don't. And Paul, of course, talks about that in Romans 7, but we're not turning there right now. Our third question is, I often seem weak and powerless to obey. How does God address that lack of power within me, within us? God's work is not limited to our wills, but he also works so that we work. He works in us to will and to work. He gives us this power, this ability. See, and this points to some of the realities of us as fallen people, that we're not only finite, because we're human as opposed to God, but we're also inconsistent because we're fallen humans. And therefore, this idea of a long obedience in the same direction is very difficult for us. That maybe in this instance I might choose self-control, but to consistently choose self-control. That's harder. That's more difficult. That stretches us in ways that we, we ne- don't necessarily like. And, and yet, here we see Paul reminding them that he works so that we work. Too often what we do is we rely upon our own power, and that's part of why we fail to obey. But we see this concurrence of work taking place in places like 1 Corinthians 15. I worked harder than any of them, referring to the other apostles, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. And so we see Paul's activity, but Paul recognized that it was the grace of God that was ultimately working in him so that he was active. We see... This again, this idea in Galatians 3, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Okay, you started your Christian faith by faith. Continue it by faith, even as you work. Don't rely on the flesh. Colossians 1, Paul talks about his toil of ministry on behalf of uh, Colossians, among others, and he says, for this I toil, I agonize, I work really hard, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. And so, know that you're not alone. That the pursuit of obedience is not a solo endeavor. God is at work in you to accomplish this obedience. And so receiving power to work is also again about prayer, expressing our helplessness and our need. That we can't do this. Jerry Bridges puts it this way. He talks about disciplined dependence. Sometimes he flips it to dependent discipline. 
Okay, uh, depending on which uh, we're going to emphasize at one point. In his book, which is our book of the month, uh, The Discipline of Grace, is one of the most helpful books on this topic. So if you don't own it, we have a library copy you can borrow. But it's very helpful in understanding um, this responsible reliance. And now I will I will qualify this. He's a Navy man. He was not an Air Force man. So forgive his um, aeronautical engineering faux pas. Um, for those of you who aren't um, aerospace engineers, you don't care. Um, but he talks about it in terms of the two wings. Now, Steve Boyer will say there's only one wing. And Steve Boyer is right, but most of you don't know this. If you only have discipline, you're going to fall into legalism. And your plane is going to crash. If you only have dependence, you're likely going to fall into antinomianism. And your plane is going to crash. You need both. Discipline and dependence. Activity, but also actively relying upon God for your plane to fly. That might lead to a 3B question. Does that mean that if I don't obey, it's God's fault? No. (laughs) That doesn't mean that at all. Um, We're not going to blame God for our sin. He is not the author of sin. Uh, He does not tempt us to sin. Um, But sometimes we don't listen to Him. Sometimes we don't trust Him. And sometimes He hands us over because we're focused on the wrong sin. That's what happens sometimes. We get, we get focused on a sin in our life. And we think that is the most crucial concern for us right now. And God says, really, I'm more concerned about your humility or lack thereof. And one of, one of the best ways to produce humility in us is a sin you can't beat. I'm not saying that that's a good thing, but I'm saying that God works it for good in producing humility in us. Now, the next phrase is a little bit of a head-scratcher for me anyway. Um, they translate it as, for his good pleasure, and all of these translations supply that personal pronoun, his. It is not in the text. Is it right for them to supply his? In other words, is this, is Paul talking about God's pleasure? That they will and work to accomplish God's pleasure? Or is he talking about their pleasure? Their good pleasure? Is it God's kindly intent? Or their good pleasure? And I think this is, as Anthony Hukuma would um, have noted earlier in this text, and in talking about the mysterious concurrence that takes place. God works precisely so. His kindly intent becomes my great pleasure. That what I want to do, what pleases me, is precisely what has what pleases Him. 
Back, back to that will question. Now I delight in his will. It's a Psalm 119 kind of thing. Where the psalmist thinks of God's commands and delights in them. And that's what God produces by his spirit. He works so that his kind intention towards us in the law becomes our great pleasure and desire because of sanctification. He works in me, and because of that, I now take great delight in his goodwill. Again, the context for all of this instruction here in in Philippians chapter 2 was to work out their salvation within the context of gospel partnership. They were intended to resolve uh, the issues that have not been really revealed just yet. That's chapter 4, and even then it's not really laid out beyond much. But those issues are only resolved within that context of, of humility and obedience that we see in Christ first and of which we must have the same mind. And that's what Paul is asking them to work out, to cultivate, to, to, to work so that it grows and blossoms in the life of that church in Philippi. And so we see that obedience isn't all about me or it isn't all about me working really hard. And neither is obedience all about passivity, just waiting for the Lord to work. But it really is this mysterious concurrence in which God works in all of me so that I begin to will and to work in light of Jesus' great salvation. God is at work to make each of us like Jesus who emptied himself by becoming a slave, like Jesus who humbled himself by being obedient even to death on a cross. And so in this great gift of salvation, we receive not only forgiveness, but we also receive the Holy Spirit who works in us to produce obedience as we walk by faith and to make use of the appropriate means that He's given us. Prayer, Scripture, community. And so, don't settle for the obedience you already have. But press on to a greater obedience, especially for the sake of the gospel partnerships that you have. And so, I ask you to pursue not simply obedience, but to pursue gospel obedience. Let's pray. Father, we are people of extremes. And sometimes our theology represents those extremes. Whether it's legalism and fleshly activity or it's passivity, quietism, and antinomianism. I praise you that your scriptures point us towards a middle road where we work hard because you are at work in us. That we're engaged, but you're engaged first. I thank you that you care more about our sanctification than we do. 
I thank you that you are at work in us to sanctify us and help us to recognize you as both great and gracious so that the obedience we seek is not one out of a servile fear but one that is out of the, the love of a child for a father. The love of one who has been rescued for the person who rescued them. Continue to transform us so that your kind intention in the law becomes our great delight. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.